This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors from Michigan Politics and Government. We're going to get started with our first guest. We are fortunate to have with us the new executive director of the Michigan Republican Party, Jason Cable Rowe. Jason Rowe, thanks for being our guest. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. I want to uh, just sketch in for our listeners a little bit about your beginnings. You were born in Lansing, and you went to school in the Lansing area. I think you're a graduate of Hazlitt High School. Yeah, uh, that's correct. And, Hazlitt High School and then uh, Western Michigan University. Well, you were a Bronco, right? Yes, that's and, right. And, Michigan State I, and Michigan wouldn't have me, but Western would. <laughs> well, uh, you got a slow start maybe uh, academically, but you made up for it later on. Let me just ask you, um, after you got out of college, uh, you kind of left Michigan for a while. What happened? Did you go to Washington, or what is your history after that? Uh, yeah, after um, I graduated, I uh, during my uh, final semester, I interned with uh, State Representative Dale Sugars in the legislature, uh, and then uh, with the Michigan Chemical Council, and then the Michigan Restaurant Association. And I was kicking around, working on campaigns. Uh, I did uh, Craig Starkweather for state Senate in 1994 in the primary, and then Jackie Morrison for state rep in Kalamazoo in the general. Uh, those campaigns, obviously, unsuccessful. I uh, was working at the Restaurant Association, and it was incredibly cold uh, here in Michigan, not anything <laughs> I didn't know. But my then-girlfriend, now wife, uh, who lived in Chicago at the time, we had spent about two years in this long-distance relationship. And we thought that uh, if we, uh, future, we should be in the same city and it shouldn't be cold. Uh, So I was looking forward to the Republican National Convention, which was going to be in San Diego in 1996. So in February of 1995, we packed up our belongings and drove across the country and uh, started our new lives there. So just uh, literally 26 uh, years to the week that I started the job at uh, MRP as executive director. Well, did you continue to live in Southern California? I uh, spent about four years in San Diego. I was, uh, you know, worked at the University of California, San Diego, doing government relations. And then uh, after just being in, in San Diego for a little over a year, was hired to be the Dole Kemp field rep for uh, Southern California. So, you know, immediately jumped back into politics. In 1997, I was executive director of the San Diego County Republican Party. And then in 98 uh, was the field director for Dan Lundgren's run for governor. And uh, we got just walloped, uh, lost by 20 points to uh, Gray Davis. Um, and, you know, I decided I, I wanted to spend some time in Washington, had never really had the opportunity. And given the GOP's prospects in California, uh, my wife and I uh, thought we'd take a chance and move to Washington. And uh, so we packed up all our stuff. Uh, didn't have a place to live or a job or anything, and um, uh, got a temp job at Manpower while I looked around, and uh, Nick Smith, my congressman in uh, Eaton County, happened to have an opening for a press secretary, and most of us political hacks aren't really qualified (laughs) to do much in a congressional office other than press secretary. 
So I uh, joined Nick's staff in uh, 1999 and spent about a year doing that. And then in, uh, during the course of that, I met uh, Jim Rogan, who was a California congressman and, and rose to prominence as one of the three prosecutors of the Clinton impeachment, along with uh, Lindsey Graham and Asa Hutchinson. And uh, Jim represented a uh, Democratic district uh, that contained most of the Hollywood studios, Burbank, Glendale, Pasadena area. And uh, he hired me to go out and be his campaign manager. So my wife and I packed up and moved back across the country to do that. And until, I want to say, six years ago, that was the most expensive congressional race in American history. Uh, back when we had $1,000 limits, uh, we raised uh, $7 million just in our campaign um, with 70,000 donors. Uh, that was largely thanks to President Clinton, who had declared Jim public enemy number one in the New York Times, which uh, we raised a lot of money <laughs> off of that. Um, Wasn't that uh, against Adam noting, Schiff? By the way, that was the election. Uh, we, we were defeated by Adam Schiff, and that's how Adam Schiff made his way to Congress. Right. Absolutely. I remember that. I, I think there was a reapportionment involved there, too. They changed the district lines a little bit, didn't they? Yep. Yeah. It had, it had been trending um, uh, for some time. And, you know, Jim had a really compelling personal story, you know, growing up uh, high school dropout, raised on welfare by his grandparents. His mother was a convicted felon. And so Democrats, you know, were willing to vote for a Republican like that. But after the Clinton impeachment, they uh, weren't as forgiving uh, in his conservatism. So then what happened to you? Uh, you know, I, uh, strangely enough, um, uh, Jim was nominated to be Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property and wanted me to come with him. So um, I, I kicked around in West Hollywood for a few months while we waited for the nomination to come through. Once it came through, we packed up and moved back to D.C. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, scheduled for the fall. And so I, again, went to Manpower to get a temp job. And while I was sitting in the office, uh, they called my references, including Congressman Nick Smith. And Nick uh, said, I didn't know Jason was back in town. Uh, <laughs> tell him to come see me. And I, I did. And he said, you know, as luck would have it, I need a press secretary again if you want to come back until Jim gets confirmed. <laughs> You're welcome, but I'm not going to pay you a dollar more than I did when you left two years ago. Uh, so I rejoined uh, Nick's staff, and uh, Jim's confirmation was scheduled for September 12th of 2001. So uh, that got delayed a little bit, as you wow. might imagine. Um, so I was working on the Hill during 9-11 and got to you know experience uh, that uh, terrible moment in our history. But uh, Jim ended up getting confirmed, and then I joined his staff. Uh, as chief of staff at the uh, Patent and Trademark Office in January of '02, and you did that for how long? Uh, you know, I, I was the only non-lawyer, non-engineer, and uh, <laughs> you know, the the exciting world of intellectual property did not uh, uh, interest me that much. So I did that for uh, about a year. Um, I had uh, the NRCC would send me around to campaigns uh, when I wasn't running campaigns to help out. And so uh, they sent me to Michigan to work on Thad McOtter's and New Mexico to work on Steve Pierce. And uh, after that, uh, there was a freshman congressman out of Florida, uh, Tom Feeney, who uh, had some notoriety. He was Speaker of the House in Florida during the recount. And um, uh, 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 Tom DeLay, who at the time was the House Majority Whip, 
Uh, I had worked closely with his office, and they called and, and said, you know, you should meet this guy. He'd be a perfect fit. So I went and joined him and spent about uh, four years as his chief of staff. Now, no, wait, is this Feeney or DeLay? Uh, Feeney, Tom Feeney. Okay, and Feeney uh, was in Congress then for what, two, three terms? Uh, he ended up serving three terms. Yeah. Uh, I was his chief of staff for two of those terms. And then did you go over to Tom DeLay then? Yeah, actually, um, uh, this is kind of funny. Tom uh, Feeney was one of the uh, 25 patriots that voted against the Medicare prescription drug bill. And uh, that that put us out of favor with uh, Team Delay. And so <laughs> Tom, who had been one of a, about a half dozen people on uh, then-majority leader Delay's uh, kitchen cabinet, um, uh you know, he got uh, excised from that. You know, my friends in Delay's office forgot my name and my phone number. <laughs> so we were in the wilderness a little bit after defying um, uh, that that uh, big, big spending bill. Uh, but um, Delay found himself underwater in polling, and they were very concerned that he might not get reelected. This was in uh, 2004. And so uh, all of a sudden they found my phone number and uh, asked me to come out for the last few weeks of the campaign and help make sure that uh, he uh, retained his seat and, and stayed in his place as majority leader. So that was actually Tom DeLay's last race. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, he didn't even run again in 2006, right? That's right. That's yeah, right. okay. Well, listen, we got to take a short break, but we'll get back and pick up on the Jason Rose saga. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Jason Rowe, who is the new executive director of the Michigan Republican Party with a ton of experience all across the country over the last several decades, uh, Washington, D.C., Southern California, Florida, Texas, even New Mexico. Uh, Jason Rowe, you are saying that Tom DeLay uh, decided to pack it in in electoral politics in 2006. So then what did you do? Uh, went back to uh, Congressman Feeney's office and uh, uh, fast forward to 2006 elections. I met um, briefly. Uh, my Feeney was the chairman of the House Conservatives Fund, which was the political arm of the Republican Study Committee, which was at that time the conservative caucus in the House, which has kind of been supplanted by the Freedom Caucus now. Uh, but so we kind of ran the political arm, and I had met with. Uh, a candidate state senator from Illinois, Peter Roscom, who was running to fill the open seat of uh, legendary Henry Hyde, who was retiring. Right. And the NRCC called me. I was actually in Montana with my father for his brother's funeral, and I got a call from the NRCC that uh, Peter was down by 10 points, and I guess this was probably July of 06, and wanted to know if I could take a leave and go out there and run his campaign. So I did that. And uh, it was a pretty exciting race because at the time, uh, Rahm Emanuel was the chairman of the DCCC and had recruited what was one of the the poster children of the 2006 um, Democratic uh, recruiting class, Tammy Duckworth, uh, now a U.S. senator. She's double amputee, Iraqi war veteran, a pretty 
uh, impressive story. And, you know, Peter was just your run-of-the-mill conservative white Republican and so the most exciting candidate biographically. Um, so, you know, I went out to, to help on that campaign, and it was, you know, it's the Chicago suburbs and Rahm Emanuel's backyard, huge, huge labor presence in politics there. And we were the only targeted race in 2006 to prevail. And, uh, you know, I, I questioned even on election night if we would win, but Peter and I were standing backstage at the convention hall and Mayor Daley called. And when we saw that call, we immediately knew we must have pulled this thing out. Peter won by less than two points. And that was probably the biggest victory of the 2006 cycle for congressional Republicans. Yeah, that was really something. I remember that race. Okay, so he served how long, and what did you do after he won? Uh, I went back to, to Feeney for a few uh, months, and then uh, Tom was one of the first uh, congressional Republicans to endorse Mitt Romney for president in, the, in 2007. And, you know, typically when a member of Congress endorses someone, that means the chief of staff has to do all the work. And so I got really engaged with the Romney campaign and uh, uh, they offered me the deputy campaign manager position. So uh, I joined the campaign for a few months. Um, unfortunately, in the wild and crazy time of all the ethics investigations into people like Tom DeLay and Bob Nay, um, <clears throat> my, my wife and I both actually kind of got swept up in it a little bit. Um, Feeney had uh, gone on a trip to Scotland with uh, Jack Abramoff, the then super lobbyist, <laughs> and in the guilt by association politics of the time, uh, found himself subject to a, a, a DOJ investigation. And so I, you know, this, I, I was never a, a subject or a target of the investigation, but, you know, I was concerned that, you know, if Governor Romney out on the stump started being asked questions about, you know, my role there, that it would not uh, be helpful. And so, as things started to intensify, intensify around that, I uh, preemptively offered my resignation to avoid, you know, any problems there. At the same time, my wife worked for a member of Congress from Arizona who also <laughs> was dealing with a congressional investigation, and so she wasn't, you know, in any way implicated either. But you know, it was not a fun time in our household. So I uh, opened up the Washington office for a Florida-based governmental relations firm, a federal strategy group, which actually has an office here in Michigan, Midwest Strategy Group. Nicole Maestrom was one of my business partners, so I opened up and ran the D.C. office. And, um, you know, I'll be honest, I just don't, I was never really cut out to be a lobbyist. Um, you know, I, I think I was decent at it, but I, I just didn't enjoy it. It was not, you know, what I was born to do. And in 2008, I went down to Florida to help Feeney on his reelect and decided, you know, this is where I belong, this is in the world of campaigns. And so I let uh, my firm know that at the end of my two-year contract, I was going to uh, leave and get back into the campaign side of things. And so uh, Patty and I, my wife, had, you know, always planned to go back to San Diego, and that was kind of an opportune moment. So she and I packed up and moved back to San Diego in uh, 09. And we uh, launched a political consulting firm with uh, my close friend, Dwayne DeCara, and his wife. So it was me and my wife and him and his wife. And we uh, did that firm for about eight years, had some great, great successes uh, around the country. And uh, then went off on my own uh, to, and started Row Strategic, continued to do consulting, uh, served as uh, Marco Rubio's uh, national media spokesman in the 2016 presidential primaries. And then in 2018, I was one of the uh, 
uh, lead consultants for the Congressional Leadership Fund and, and spent a lot of time working on the Michigan congressional seats. Um, and, you know, one thing led to another, and um, my father had passed away in 2018, so I was back in Michigan spending a lot of time settling his estate. And to be honest, just felt more at home in Michigan than I probably ever did in D.C. or California. And um, started talking to my wife about, you know, moving back to see if I could do that. And, um, you know, we hadn't decided, we were thinking about it. And then March 15th happened and the COVID shutdowns. And, you know, I know enough about uh, human behavior that when they announced that we were just going to do this for two weeks to flatten the curve, that I thought that was complete nonsense. And two weeks would be at a minimum many months, if not years. And we decided to get out of California before things got too bad. And I'm glad that we did, because as bad as Michigan is on these lockdowns, California is even worse. Um, you know, we are fortunate that, that my son, who is in uh, Catholic school, goes to school every day. He plays sports, um, all those things. And he wouldn't be able to do those things in San Diego. So particularly for his benefit, we're glad we made that decision and I'm happy to be back in Michigan. Okay, so you get the call from Ron Weiser, the new state Republican chairman. He wants you to be executive director. So what are the challenges ahead for you in Michigan right now going into 2022? Well, I think the obvious one is uniting the party. Um, you know, we have a, a pretty big, big fracture um, that developed, you know, I think over the last five years. And, you know, and it looks bad, and certainly the mainstream media likes to to fuel that fire. But I think the reality is at the end of the day that that fracture is between one faction that uh, supports Donald Trump, the man, and another faction that supports the Trump administration's policies. Um, you know, these policies are, you know, probably uh, most conservative policies of my lifetime, uh, more than even Reagan. Um, I think there's very little that any Republican, regardless of their feelings on Donald Trump, the man, would object to. Um, and I think we saw real results from uh, uh, th those policies, both economically and, and particularly foreign policy. I think one glaring mistake in the Trump re-election campaign is not highlighting the foreign policy accomplishments. And, and certainly the international community didn't love them. But at the same time, um, that's probably because they have been getting their way for a long time. And finally, there was kind of a muscular American foreign policy on the table that uh, put, put our nation first. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we could go on talking about this forever, but you've done a great job tracing your history and what it looks like for you going forward. Thank you, Jason Rowe, new executive director for the Michigan Republican Party, for being our guest. Thanks, Bill. That's fun. It was. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with us Representative Tim Beeson. He is a Republican of Bay City. He represents the 96th House District, and that consists of the city of Bay City, Essexville, and seven townships, I believe, in Bay County, and he is the owner of Beeson's Market, and he was one of two Republicans who defeated incumbent Democrats in last November's general election to help the Republicans retain a 58-52 majority in the state house. Tim Beeson, thank you for being our guest. 
Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, let me ask you, Tim Beeson. I mean, you, I think, were an elected member of the Bangor Township School Board, so you had a little electoral experience, but uh, how did you come to run for state representative last year? So I had the push from my school board, and uh, I enjoyed being on the school board, and I wanted to do some bigger changes because um, I clearly thought that you could uh, be on the school board and run for uh, and win a state rep position, and uh, school board came first. After that, uh, I realized that it was the best time to get into uh, the public arena based on the amount of regulation coming down to our small businesses before the pandemic even hit. So I've had a lot of challenges this last year, as much as all the small businesses have, and uh, restaurants in our area businesses have had. And uh, it it actually worked out perfect because I know when I'm in Lansing, I know what the people need. I'm uh, talking to him at my business and being out um, supporting our local businesses in Bay City. Representative Tim Beeson, um, you were running against the incumbent Democrat uh, Brian Elder, and that seat in Bay County, uh, the 96 it is now, has been in Democratic hands for years and years and years. So it was quite an upset uh, when you won, and you won pretty easily in November you had to win a primary first. I think you had a couple of opponents. Uh, you beat them, and then you beat Brian Elder. What did you experience during the campaign? Well, the nice thing about Bay County is uh, the people in Bay County know who I am, and it doesn't matter whether you're Democrat, Republican, or Independent. I'm willing to help everybody, it, and that's how I run my business, and that's why we've been around since 1912 as a family of name in the, in the county, you know? So... Um, and that was uh, a big, a big help to my win was, uh, my family and the support that I got. Um, as for, I have nothing against Brian Elder. Um, I just know that, um, I actually voted for him three terms ago. Uh, my uncle Pat was a big supporter and, uh, I just, I, I needed more support. So that's what I'm going to try to do to people in our area is be seen, be shown, listen to what they have to say, and show up to uh, events. So when you got elected and you came to Lansing, um, such as you were able to do, maybe you've had to do a lot of stuff virtually since November. You met all your colleagues. Uh, you've been sworn in. Uh, you're now a member. You're now voting on the House floor. What committee assignments did you get? So I got appropriations, um, but I got to tell you, uh, Bill, if you back up, I own a business. We're essential, so we don't have uh, – we can't hide in our house. I'm not being mean, but we can't hide. We have to be here to offer goods and services like every other uh, person that works at the McDonald's oven. So uh, I don't have that opportunity when you say uh, from Zoom, you can't sell me a, a Zoom. No, so uh, in our small <laughs> stores, um, we have to do that in person. So I've been in person this entire time, and uh, – some general hygiene is important, but we've been in person working. Now, when we're down in Lansing, um, I'm getting to know the players. And, yes, that is a lot of Zoom meetings. Um, when I say the players, you're getting to know all the people in your committees. But the legislator, the 101st, we work side-by-side side with Democrats and our policy people daily. We go to work every day, and the only time that somebody is not there is when they um, have uh, symptoms 
uh, and then they're off for the 14 days, and then we go back to work. So working in person is crucial to getting things done in Lansing. Yeah. What subcommittees of the Appropriations Committee are you on? EHHS, K-12 School, MDAR, and DIFS and LARA. Well, now you're getting into the acronyms. Uh, MDAR is <laughs> uh, agriculture, right? Correct. And, 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 yes. and health and human services? DHHS, yes, Department of Health and Human Services. Right. Correct. And um, then I also have K-12, which is the school uh, fund for K-12, not higher. And I also have Lara, which is, um, that's uh, one light, of my favorites light. because of my dad just passing, that there were some regulations that went down to our um, assistant living, and I feel that we, we should have done better. Uh, but I wasn't there. I am going forward, and we need some accountability in Lansing. And um, uh, it just we, we just need to make sure that we are uh, a little clearer and, you know, yeah. more helpful for the people. Yeah. Uh, that acronym LARA, L-A-R-A, means Licensing and Regulatory Affairs. So that, that's what that's all about. Um, ha- your meetings so far, have you guys all been meeting virtually? Or, or did you ever have a committee meeting together? In person, every every committee meeting is together. Uh, some people are virtual. All the and it seems to me that a lot of the um, licensed uh, executives, people that are in charge of each department, seem to be meeting um, due to the DHHS and the governor's insight to stay home. Um, but the rest of us are working every day. Like we meet in our uh, house of business on the fifth floor and the third floor. Every week, just like normal. Yeah. Well, I mean, what is your experience so far with your colleagues in the legislature of both parties? Have you gotten to know some better than others? What What are your relationships? How easy has it been to acclimate yourself to what's going on in this strange new world of the state capital, Lansing, Michigan? Um, I find no problem, and it, Lansing is extremely safe. The sergeant-at-arms are amazing. And I can go across, and I've got to meet a few of my colleagues. Um, uh, not so much Zoom, but I can go right to their office and uh, talk to them and have a coffee with them. So we meet daily. Uh, we go to all the functions. Like Lansing is still running kind of like my business. There are a few outliers that are, are um, that are, feel that, and, and, and that they protect themselves, and I get it. And, uh, but the rest of us go to work every day. Uh, and show up every day, and we can meet, and that's how it's been working. And it's kind of nice because it's kind of just like my business. Like, we have to be there, so it it hasn't changed too much for myself. Are you driving back and forth to Bay City every day, or you found you have to get an apartment or some living arrangements here in Lansing during the week? Well, I I tried to drive back and forth as much as possible. I did get caught by a couple of snowstorms, and I missed a couple of um, meetings, uh, no, no committees, but I missed a couple of meetings with some of the uh, different groups that we're supposed to meet with. And uh, so now I'm trying to stay there on uh, a couple nights a week uh, unless my kids have a sporting event or um, something comes up back in the uh, Bay City with my business. What about the COVID relief package, the supplemental uh, that has just been approved by the House and you've been negotiating with the Senate, you send the bill to the governor, and it's different than what the governor has asked for. Uh, what, what's what been your experience with that so far? 
Well, uh, that actually, that House Bill 4047 uh, bill was my um, original to help our struggling businesses, restaurants, and it, they actually tacked on um, some hotels and some uh, hairdressers. And cosmetology. So that was actually uh, part of the bill that I just, um, and we actually had that signed and to the Senate almost three weeks ago. So when some people say we're not doing anything about it, uh, we are in the House working hard. The Senate came back, and now we have something for the uh, governor because it's a three-part, right? The House, the Senate, and then the governor. It works. We have to work all three together to negotiate to get what's best for Michiganders, right? Exactly right. Listen, I would keep uh, talking about this. I'd love to. We're out of time, believe it or not. It goes so fast, but I want to thank you Freshman State Representative Tim Beeson, Republican of Bay City, representing the 96th House District. Thanks for being our guest, Representative Tim Beeson. Thanks, Bill. Have a great weekend. Same to you. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, but with no guest. Instead, I want to hold forth for a few minutes on the question of whether journalism, as many of us have experienced it over most of our lifetimes, is dying. Well, according to a writer named Antonio Garcia Martinez, in an article he wrote online on a website called Wired, the answer is No. Martinez argues instead that the future of journalism is more partisan and supported by more revenue streams. In other words, it's like the journalism of 200 years ago. Yes, the past few years have brought bad news to the hardworking scribes of the news business. Earlier this year, three leading digital outlets, that means online, called BuzzFeed and the Huffington Post and Vice, announced layoffs that left many accomplished journalists unemployed. Fingers of blame pointed to the great bogeymen of our media age, such as Facebook and Google, and warned about a threat to democracy. After all, the most savvy and avant-garde of the new digital journalists can't make a living. What hope is there for old-school newspapers? To many... The health of our democracy is inextricably tied to the health of our journalism. If the latter begins to die, the former must immediately follow, so the thinking goes. That's a curious sentiment, because if you were to summon up the architects of our democracy, men like, get ready for this, Benjamin Franklin or Samuel Adams, who were newspapermen, both of them, today, they would find our journalistic ecosystem with its fact-checking and claims to objectivity completely unrecognizable. Franklin wrote under at least a dozen pseudonyms, including such gems as Silence Duguid and Alice Addertongue, and he pioneered the placement of advertising next content. Samuel Adams who was known as Vindex the Avenger and Philo Patriae, was editor of the rabidly anti-British Boston Gazette, and he also helped organize the Boston Tea Party when activists dumped tea into Boston Harbor rather than pay tax on it. 
Adams duly covered the big event the next day with absolute plomb. They'd have no notion of journalistic objectivity and would find the entire undertaking futile and likely unprofitable. If, however, you explain Twitter, the blogosphere, and newsy partisan outlets like Daily Cause or National Review to the founding fathers like Franklin and Adams, they would recognize them instantly. A resurrected Franklin wouldn't have a news job inside the Washington Post. He'd have an anonymous Twitter account with a huge following that he'd use to routinely follow columnist gig at a less partisan outlet like Politico or a popular podcast. Ben Franklin, if he were alive now, might say, quote, it's absolutely blooming as it was in my day, unquote. What is dying, perhaps, is that flavor of so-called objective journalism that purports to record an unbiased count of world events. We take journalistic objectivity to be as natural and immutable as the stars, but it's a relatively short-lived artifact of late 20th century America. Even now, it's foreign to Europeans. Cities such as London cultivate a rowdy crowd of partisan scribblers who don't even pretend there's an impregnable wall between reportage and opinion. The U.S. was much the same till the late 19th and early 20th century. Until 1900 or so, most newspapers in this country were overtly political, and a name like the Press Democrat meant Democrat with a big D. Advertising was a minor concern as party leaders encouraged members to subscribe to their local party organ, eliminating the need for anything more than classified ads. The bigger switch happened as a national market consumer goods opened after the Civil War when purveyors like department stores wanted to reach large urban audiences. Newspapers responded by increasing the number of ads relative to content, and they switched to models de-emphasizing political partisanship in the interest of expanding circulation. This move was driven not exclusively by lofty ideals, but by mercenary greed. And it worked! Newspapers used to make lots of money, mountains of money. As late as the 1980s and 1990s, many papers had margins exceeding 30% profit, greater than Google's margins are right now. Media might now be a sick man in this country, but it wasn't always so, and it doesn't need to be. What happens when the profit motive to journalism collides with the modern so-called independent model of journalism? Well, Martinez, the writer, the author I cited in the beginning, contends that our reborn founding father journalist Ben Franklin would find this disconnect between editorial and business absolutely inconceivable. Franklin knew very well on what side his journalistic toast was buttered, and he would have leapt at any new monetization ideas. Some practitioners of the increasingly outmoded 20th century model of journalism chide 
their younger 21st century colleagues at outlets like Vice and BuzzFeed overtly taking partisan sides in their public Twitter personas, diminishing the decorum of supposedly disinterested objective journalists in their regular articles. But Ben Franklin would say, so what? Donald Trump has been a boon for digital subscriptions at outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Last month, the Times reported a record $708 million in digital revenue 2018, helped by a 27% jump subscriptions. It's heartwarming to think the American public rallied to support abstract principles like the free press by subscribing to the Times. In reality, the American public forked over their hard-earned money because they wanted to see a controversial president roasted endlessly, and they got what they wanted. Let's face it, we live in what might be called a Rashomon reality. That's based on a famous Japanese film in which what is considered the truth depends on which direction you're looking at it from, in which every event is instantly captured from a dozen angles and given at least as many interpretations. Whether it's a Supreme Court confirmation hearing or a video of Catholic kids at a march, the thought that one media outlet will produce what's taken as God's gospel truth under the demands of today's light-speed media cycle and subject to the vigilante fact-checking of Twitter seems a bit quaint, to say the least. By now, the savvy media consumer knows that he or she has to wait 24 hours before making any conclusion about a scoop. Cross-check at least a handful of sources and two dozen Twitter accounts. Takes Across the political spectrum, objectivity is now an outmoded holdover from the days of studiously inoffensive and circulation-expanding reportage lavishly supported by unquestioning advertiser budget. That's all gone now, and it's not clear this studious called objectivity more closely approximates truth. Iraq and WMDs, Madam President? Those were headlines produced under rigorously objective and wrong coverage a few years ago. While those who got it right, and there were some, spoke from less regimented perches. Journalists pining for a return to their golden age of advertising supported journalism are disturbingly similar to aged Midwestern factory workers seeking a return to the time when high school-educated labor could afford middle-class lives, total job security. Both golden ages resulted from a unique set of economic political circumstances that are now gone and impossible to reproduce. Those who claim democracy requires the precise flavor of journalism we've known for a century or so We'll have to explain how our republic survived the century preceding, dating back to Benjamin Franklin. I could go on about this, but folks, uh, journalism has changed a lot over the last several decades, and we better get used to it. And for that matter, it may be better journalism now than it certainly was a century ago or even a half century ago. I'll be back next week with still more.